Several years ago, a survey was taken of literary scholars to determine the greatest short story ever written. Uh, to qualify as a great story, a, a story had to be one which could be read over and over, time and time again, and yet each time have an impact and leave an impression. And it had to be a story which was short, but yet so profound that it could be reflected on from more than one angle. And when the results came in of, of these literary scholars, an astounding 70% of these scholars who were polled said that the story of the prodigal son is the greatest short story ever told. Probably you know the story. If you'd like to uh, kind of run it down for you, but if you'd like to uh, read along, it's in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. Jesus told the story and he began it this way. He said, there was a man who had two sons. And one day the younger son came to him and said, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Now this request would have been uh, very hurtful, very offensive to the father really, because essentially the son was saying, I don't want anything to do with you, I just want your money but I don't want a relationship with you. So it was a very hurtful thing, a very painful thing for a father to hear. But the father, uh, no doubt hurt, at the same time he, he did what the son asked. He said, if this is what you want, then okay, go ahead. And he gave his son the share of the property and the share of the money, and the son left and went away and went off to a far country. And the son went off and he, in that far country, he squandered his father's money on parties and prostitutes and extravagant living until he ran out of money. It says that there was a famine in the land and so the prodigal son, he got a job, but the only job he could get was a job working with pigs, feeding pigs. It's a humiliating job, especially for a, a Jewish person for whom, you know, pigs are unclean. And, and the son, he got to the point where he's so hungry, so destitute, that he's even wanting to eat the slop that he was feeding to the pigs. And it was at that time when he remembered how in his father's house, even the servants had it better than he had it now. So he determined that he would swallow his pride and he would go back to his father with his tail between his legs and ask his father to receive him back as a servant, not as a son. Because you see, by asking for his inheritance, this son had basically disowned his family. I mean, that was really the essence of what he said. He said, you are as good as dead to me. Now give me the inheritance that I would have gotten had you actually died. So the son knows that if he returns back home, he can't go back as a son. He can't go back in the same status that he had before because of all that he's done, because of the very hurtful and very foolish things that he's done. So he's hoping that in going back that he'll be able to ask for forgiveness and that his father will be so gracious as to receive him back if only as a servant. So the son sets off on this long journey home, and as he gets near the, the family property, the father sees him walking down the road. And as the son gets closer, the father realizes, that's my son. That's my son who left and, and you know, disowned me, essentially. He, he's coming back down the road, and, and the father ran down the road to meet him. Now, running was not something that a man in that culture would, would ever do because it was seen as unbecoming. It was seen as undignified. But the father didn't care about saving face. He cared only about embracing the son who was returning home. And the father met his son on the road. He embraced him. He kissed him. And he welcomed his home. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. And the father took him back, but not as a servant. The father took him back 
in full status as a son. He put a ring on his finger and he threw a big party to celebrate. And he declared, my son who was dead is alive once again. He was lost, but now he's found. The story of the prodigal son is a story of returning. It's an illustration of what it looks like for someone to return to God. Someone who's gone afar off to return to God. It's a story of repentance. Of how God, and it's, and it's really a great illustration of how God responds to a person who repents of sin. Uh, how God responds to a person who returns to him. You know, the word prodigal, it means extravagant. It means lavish, right? Over the top. And the, the word prodigal, interestingly enough, is not actually found in the text of the story. If you look in Luke 15, the word prodigal is not in there. But it, this is the popular name which has, you know, um, been used for the story. It's the way that it's become known, the title that's been given to it. But the word prodigal is not actually in the text. And, of course, you know, the word prodigal, usually we take it to refer to the son, the one who ran off and lived extravagantly, over the top, lavishly. He squandered his inheritance. But it's also been suggested that the word prodigal applies just as much to the father as it does to the son. Because the father could also be called prodigal, since prodigal means extravagant. The, the father is also extravagant in the grace that he shows, in that he lavishes grace and forgiveness upon his son. When the son returns, the father lavishes gifts upon him. He throws an extravagant party, all for this son who had turned his back on him. The father uh, receives this one who had lived badly and squandered everything. And, and therefore, it's been suggested that Perhaps a better name for this story would be the prodigal father or perhaps even the prodigal God because if prodigal means lavish or extravagant, the point of the story is not really how indulgently the son lived. The point of the story is how lavishly and extravagantly God gives grace to those who return to him, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done. In the text of our, our uh, story today, we're in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. We have a story about returning. In chapter 6, we see the return of the Ark of the Covenant to the people of Israel. In chapter 7, we see the return of the hearts of the people to the Lord. And really, the major theme here is that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's the thing we're going to see throughout these two chapters. And that's very important for us to take note of in regard to our theme in this study of having a heart for God, developing a heart for God. 1 Peter 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Let's read from verse 1 of chapter 6. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. Okay, just let me get you back up to speed because it's kind of like, you know, when you jump in the middle of like uh, 24 or something, right? And you got to be like, in the previous tw 10 episodes, here's what's happened. Here's Jack Bauer saved the world 15 times. But uh, here's what's going on in our story to get you back up to speed. The nation of Israel is being attacked by the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were an immigrant people who had uh, come from the island of Crete, and they were a militaristic people. They had come to the land of Canaan and established uh, a series of five cities up and down the Mediterranean coast there, and their goal was to establish an empire. And to do that, they had to, their plan was to conquer and subdue the Israelites who were already living there in the land. 
But the Israelites weren't ready to just lay down and and let the Philistines take this land that God had given them, given to their forefathers as a promise. The problem, though, is that they're totally outmatched, right? The Philistines, you know, as far as weapons go and militaristically, the Philistines are, are way more advanced than they are, way more organized. And in their first battle, the Israelites got creamed by the Philistines. They lost 4,000 men in one battle. So after that happened, what we saw last week in our story is that the Israelites got this big idea of how they could beat the Philistines. They said, if we could only just bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us, you know, just like Joshua had brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Battle of Jericho, then surely we will win. We can't lose, in fact, because... You know, the Ark of the Covenant, it was this special box. It was, laid, it was um, overlaid in gold. It was made of acacia wood. And it was the box which held the two stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written. And this uh, Ark of the Covenant was kept in the Holy of Holies. The top of it had these two angels on it, cherubim. And it was on that seat, which was called the Mercy Seat, which is the top of the Ark of the Covenant, where one day a year, a priest would go in and he, he would make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the nation. This is a very symbolic, it had a lot of rich value for the, the people of Israel. It was the physical representation of the spiritual throne of God, the presence of God amongst the Jewish people. But at this time, in this story, what we saw last week, uh, the Israelites had began to look at the Ark of the Covenant as a uh, kind of a genie in a bottle type thing, right? Like God in a box. It was a good luck charm for them. It was very superstitious. Kind of like if somebody were to think that their Bible were lucky, right? And they carry their Bible around with them as a good luck charm. Maybe you guys have seen uh, some of these commercials that run during the NFL games. There's this one in particular, right, about the superstitious things that people do to get their teams to win. Have you guys seen that one? Right, the tagline is, it's only weird if it doesn't work. Now, I'm not a very superstitious person, but, but you know, with the Broncos playing and all uh, in the Super Bowl today, I think it kind of just brings out uh, people's superstitious leanings all over the state of Colorado. Yesterday, I was, uh, I was going to get my hair cut because it's been a while, and, uh, and then I got to thinking, you know, wait a second, uh, the Broncos haven't lost like since the last time I got my hair cut. I started thinking, is it possible? No, no, I can't go there, but maybe, right? Maybe it is possible that this hair has carried the Broncos through the playoffs. Maybe not, but then again, let's just put it this way, if the Broncos win tonight, you guys all know who to thank. So the Israelites, they're looking to the Ark of the Covenant, they're bringing it into battle, they're thinking that this is the ultimate good luck charm that's going to guarantee them victory, but that's not what happened at all, right? Not at all. Not not only did they lose in that battle, but they lost in in an unimaginable way. They lost 30,000 soldiers, 30,000 people lay dead on the field of battle. All of the priests of Israel died that day. And if that weren't enough, the thing which seemed completely unthinkable to them, the Philistines captured and stole from them the Ark of the Covenant. And we saw last week how the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, thinking that it was Israel's God, God in a box, and they tried to humiliate the God of Israel. But God did not let that happen, right? He took care of his own reputation. 
Every town where the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and put it on display to humiliate the God of Israel, God struck the Philistines with tumors and plagues until they got to the point where the Philistines were just like where they are here in, in uh, chapter 6, where the Philistines are like, we got to get rid of this thing. We cannot have this thing around anymore. Uh, we, we need to return this to the people of Israel because we are getting wiped out, right? This is not good for us. So here in chapter 1, as we read, the Ark of the Covenant was in the land of the Philistines for seven months. Seven months. Seven months of tumors, seven months of plagues. I'm, I think it's remarkable that they held on to this thing for seven months because everywhere it goes, it causes problems and pain and suffering. And they knew exactly why they were suffering those things. They knew exactly what was going on. Everywhere they took it, right, there would be problems. They knew that God wanted them to return the Ark of the Covenant to Israel, but they weren't doing it. They would just pass it on to another Philistine city until they went to all five of them, and nobody wanted this thing anymore. See, they were resisting the will of God. They knew what God wanted them to do, but they weren't doing it. So, you know, they start passing it around like a hot potato until they finally get to the point where they say, all right, we learned our lesson. We've been resisting the will of God. We can't keep this up. It's just, we can't. We're getting beat up and worn out and miserable fighting against what God wants us to do. What we got to do now is apologize and give this thing back like God wants us to. The Philistines resisted the will of God for seven months. Now, it's easy for us to look at that and think, oh, what foolish Philistines, right? But I wonder how many people in this room have ever resisted God for seven months? Or how about for seven years? Anybody like that? You knew what God wanted you to do, but you were resisting it. You thought you had a better plan. You thought that your idea was better, right? Even though you knew what God wanted you to do, you resisted it. And I would, I would venture to guess that there are even some of you who are here today who are still resisting the will of God for your life in some area. Uh, and if there are, I am sure that you know who you are. If that's you, I'm sure that you know who you are because the Philistines knew exactly that they were not doing what God wanted them to do. So the question is, are you, am I, are you resisting the will of God in some area of your life? Is there something that you know God wants you to do, a broken relationship that he wants you to repair? Is there something you've done or is there something that you're holding on to that God wants you to let go of? The Philistines knew what God wanted them to do. They knew that, he, that God wanted them to let go of this ark and give it back, but they weren't doing it. And as a result, they became miserable. So they decide to finally now here give in to what God wants and send the ark of the covenant back to Israel. In verses 2 through 6, if you want to follow along, we read how the Philistines, what they do is they make a guilt offering, which is basically their way of acknowledging that they were wrong. They're saying, okay, we get it. This is our fault. We have, uh, we've been resisting God. We've been doing something we shouldn't. And now we're apologizing and we're asking for mercy. As a gift offering, or sorry, as a guilt offering, they gave a gift of five golden tumors and five golden rats. Five was the number of the cities. Uh, of the Philistines where they had taken the Ark of the Covenant. The tumors and the rats represented the specific plagues which had come upon them as a result of them stealing and passing around the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so here's my point though with this, and this is really key to this theme of returning to God. 
and not resisting God. Returning requires humility. It requires humility. It requires humility for these guys, even these Philistines, to admit that they've been wrong and give the ark back to Israel. It requires humility for the prodigal son to swallow his pride and return to his father and ask for forgiveness and grace. And it will require humility for you to return to God when you've gone away, to return to people when you've sinned against them, and to admit that you've been wrong and that you, you didn't do what you knew that God wanted you to do. You were resisting. That takes humility to admit that. But yet there is this wonderful promise for all those who will humble themselves and do what God wants them to do. And that's the verse we read earlier, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's continue reading in verse 7. Now therefore, uh, this was the advice of the Philistine leaders. Now therefore, make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you're returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he, has, uh, then he has done this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not by his hand, that's God's hand, that he has struck us. It happened to us by chance. Okay, so the Philistines here, they just want to do one last test, right? To make sure that all this stuff that happened to them was really God doing this to them and it wasn't just a bunch of coincidences. So here's the test. They're going to take two milk cows and yoke them together. Now, milk cows were not generally used for pulling carts. That's one of the important things here. It would not be natural. It would be against their instincts for two milk cows who had never pulled anything to pull a cart and work together. And they're going to take the cow they're going to take the babies right away from the mothers and they're going to take them in the opposite direction of Israel's city Beth Shemesh and the test will be will the mother cows follow their calves or will they go against their instincts and take this cart up to Israel they've never pulled a cart they don't have a GPS nobody's gonna lead them and they're just gonna to have to find their way against all odds and against all instincts let's see what happens in verse 12 in verse 10 then the men did so, and they took two milk cows and hitched them to a cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the golden rats and the images of the tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. So against all natural instincts, these cows take this cart and pull it straight over the hill to the land of the Israelites. Now, when it says that the cows were lowing, I'm not, I wasn't sure actually what that meant. I'm, I haven't spent a lot of time around cows. I wasn't sure if they were lowing for joy or if they were lowing because they were unhappy. Well, it turns out that cows don't really low for joy. If cows are making a bunch of noise, uh, that's because they're not happy about something. They don't like it. So essentially what we have here is these cows, they're going and they're complaining the whole way, but yet they're still pulling this cart to Israel, right? Uh, they're, they're going because in a, they're lowing because they're going there against their will, basically. They want to be with their babies, but they're being forced by this invisible 
power to, to take this cart up the hill to the Israelites, even though they don't really want to. So this was a huge sign to the Philistines that indeed, this was not just a coincidence, this was the will of God for their lives, that they returned the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. Let's continue on in verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. When the ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there, a large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on a large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the Israelites see the Ark of the Covenant come over the hill, uh, being pulled by these milk cows, they were amazed. They, their minds were blown. You can see that they've been praying, they've been asking God to do this, and here it comes with no warning whatsoever. Here it comes just over the hill and parks itself in the middle of a field. So what do they do? They worship and they sacrifice. Worship is our response to God's grace and his goodness. That's why, you know, we have uh, two ways of doing service here at, at Whitefields, and I like doing worship at the end of service. You know why? Because I believe that worship has to be a response, right? Taking communion, remembering the Lord, and then worshiping. Because worship is meant to be a response to God's grace and God's goodness and his glory. Now skip down to verse 19. It says this. Then he, that's God, he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck uh, 50,070 men of the people. In your notes, you'll notice, in some of your translations, it'll say he struck 70 of the people, which is probably more accurate. It means that out of 50,000, he struck 70 of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Some of the men of Beth Shemesh, in all the excitement of getting the Ark of the Covenant back, they open up the lid, the mercy seat, they remove the mercy seat, and they look inside. They want to see if the two tablets of the Ten Commandments are still inside or if the Philistines have stolen them. So it says there that God struck these men for doing that. Seventy people died this day because they removed the mercy seat and looked inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what is this all about? Why would God do this to these guys? I mean, you look at this and you might think, weren't their motives pure? Didn't they just want to make sure that the Philistines hadn't taken the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments? Now, remember the key concept, the key verse for these two chapters we're looking at today. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That doesn't just apply to the Philistines. That's what this part of the story tells us. That verse that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, it doesn't just apply to people who are not believers, but it applies to people who are believers. You see, what these guys, what these guys did was presumptuous, and it was irreverent. Here's a deeply symbolic object that God has given them, which speaks to them of his presence and his throne. And with no authorization whatsoever, these guys walk up and take the lid off of it. They treat it as common. And so, there, you know, there were regulations in the law of Moses as to how the Ark of the Covenant was to be treated. Only certain people were allowed to touch it and only in certain ways. And so it was considered, it was to be considered something that was consecrated, set apart, holy, and it was to be treated with reverence. Now, we don't know the details of what these guys did, but something they did with the ark was irreverent. 
and, and as a result, they died. Remember this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. One of the great themes that we're seeing as we go through 1 Samuel is this theme of the holiness of God, that God is holy and God wants, to up, wants us to approach him with a sense of humility, with a spirit of humility, with a sense of reverence, not ever with an arrogant or a haughty spirit. We'll carry on from, uh, from verse 1 of, uh, of the next chapter. Oh, I'm sorry, let's go from verse uh, 20. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kirath Jerim and said, The Philistines have brought back the Ark of the Lord. Now come down and take it up with you. In other words, the, the Ark of the Covenant's like this hot potato. Nobody can handle it. Nobody can hold on to it. So even it comes back to Israel and they want to get rid of it. So the men of kirath Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. From verse 2 it says, So it was that the ark remained at kirath Jerim a long time. It was there twenty years, and the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. And when it says that Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah, it doesn't mean that he got all judgmental on them, right? Like, you guys are terrible. No, it was not that at all. It means that he became their leader. In those days, Israel didn't have a king. That's what we're going to be seeing over the next few chapters. That God was their king at this time, and, and for centuries they had not had a, a king in the sense that other nations did. What they had instead were priests and prophets and judges. And for them, a judge was, was, a, was a leader of the people. He was one who would unite the tribes of Israel for a specific time for a specific person. This was a person who was called by God and anointed by God to lead the people. So when you read about, like for example, in the book of Judges, that's what these guys were. They were leaders of the nation who who would unite the tribes of Israel and lead the nation as a whole. So here's Samuel. He's no longer only a prophet, but now we see that he has become the leader of the nation. And the first thing he does when he takes over leadership of these people is he tells them, before we do anything else, before we strategize, before we prepare for fighting against the Philistines, the first thing we need to do, the number one priority, is we need to get right with the Lord in our hearts. And so Samuel calls the people to return to the Lord with all their hearts. He tells them to get rid of their foreign gods, get rid of their idols. And I like to call this the art of returning, the art of returning. And I put it this way, I was thinking about this, I'd say this. Saving face is not a biblical virtue, but returning is a gospel art. Returning is a gospel art. I call it the art of returning. This idea of returning to God, this is one of the key themes of the Bible. The, the, to repent in the Bible is such a common thing, it's such a common thread throughout the Bible. You see it through Genesis all the way through Revelation. 
Always repent, repent. What does repentance mean? It doesn't mean to just feel bad about something you've done. Repentance means to change direction. It means to turn around, to do a 180 and head back where you came from. If you've been going away from God, then change direction and return to God. If you've been going down a certain path in life, that path leads somewhere. Repent, to repent means to turn around. Stop going down that path and return in the direction you came from. The art of returning. Samuel calls the people to return to the Lord with their whole hearts. That is an inward action. Return to the Lord with your hearts. That's inward. But then he calls them to do an outward action as well. He says, and get rid of your idols. True repentance true returning to God. It's an inward decision of the heart, but it will have outward implications for how you live practically. It will be seen in your life. If you truly repent, if you truly turn back to God with your heart, it will be manifest in different ways in your life. It will be seen. Samuel called the people to get rid of their Baals and their Ashtaroths and worship the Lord only. See, if you would have asked the people of Israel, they would have said, you know, we never really turned away from God. All that we really did was we just added in other gods. We started worshiping other things in addition to him. Ashtaroth was the goddess of physical pleasure and fertility. Baal was the god of prosperity. So you look at this and you, you see that they weren't really all that different than us. They just had little statues, but those statues represented things which they longed for and lived for and desired and wanted and even worshipped. We do the same things, right? In addition to worshipping the Lord, they had begun worshipping physical pleasure and prosperity. Well, that's not so different than today. And Samuel says, I want you to return in your hearts to the Lord and serve him only. I want you to have an undivided heart for God. So Samuel gathers the people at Mizpah and they pray together and they confess that they have sinned against God and together they humble themselves before the Lord and they repent. You know, repentance is not something that you only need to do once when you first become a Christian. If you look throughout the Old Testament, you see this pattern that Israel continuously. They live this lifestyle of repentance. It's even built into their yearly calendar of things that they need to do, right? There's repentance planned out, built in. That's a huge part of who God called them to be. It's for who, uh, it's us. That's who God's called us to be too. Repentance isn't something you just do once when you become a Christian. Repentance is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of continually turning back to God, of continually course correcting, you could say. You know, one of the reasons we take communion every week here at Whitefields is because we want to do that. We want to continually course correct, so to say, maintain that posture of humble repentance before God of continually returning to him and laying down our idols and getting our hearts focused back on the Lord. We see it again throughout the history of Israel. Over and over there were times of repentance and returning to God. It was the lifestyle that God wanted them to live. And that's the model for us to follow as well. So let's see what happens after they repent. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. 
So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. What a different picture than what we saw last week. Remember when they weren't crying out to the Lord, they were scheming and trying to find a good luck charm that could give them victory. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Not only do they, do they repent, but there's a sacrifice, a sacrifice to cover their sins. Again, a picture of Jesus who would die as a sacrifice for our sins. Not only do we repent, but we are covered by his blood. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued, oh, I'm sorry, verse 10, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went up to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Bethkar. So the first thing that Samuel did as leader of the people was to call the people to repentance, to return to God. And the second thing he leads them in is he says, not only do we need to return to God, but we're going to be a people who pray. We're going to be a people who pray. They don't stand a chance against these Philistines militaristically, right? There's no way they can stand up against this military. But God, God can do anything. God can cause milk cows to pull a cart over a hill totally against their nature. God can do anything. So they pray to God who can do anything to do something for them and save them from the hand of the Philistines. And that's exactly what happens. God causes this great noise, this great thunder to come, and it sends the Philistines into confusion and the Israelites are able to defeat them against all odds. And what a different picture this is than the one in chapter 4, where instead of calling upon the Lord, the people put their trust in the Ark of the Covenant as their lucky charm to help them in battle. But now, rather than trusting in the Ark of God, they're trusting in the God of the Ark. Verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called it Ebenezer, saying, thus far, the Lord has helped us. Samuel sets up a memorial, this stone of remembrance, so that, so that neither these people nor their descendants will ever forget what God did on that day, that great and mighty thing that God did on that day, bringing them deliverance against all odds. God heard their prayers and answered them. You know, this rock, Ebenezer, this wasn't the first of its kind. If you read throughout the Old Testament, what you see is that as the people of Israel traveled, there were a number of times when they would set up these rocks, these memorial stones, to help them remember and never forget what God had done for them at specific times along the way. And you know that these were there for posterity, really, right? They were there so that in coming generations, as the people would travel through the country, that generation after generation would see these stones of remembrance, and that the children would ask, you know, mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, look, there's another one of those rocks. What's the story behind that one? Tell me that story. Why is it there? I want to hear that story too. It would be a great opportunity for the parents to share with the kids the kinds of stories, the great things that God had done, how he had answered their prayers and how he had shown them grace and given them deliverance. And I would encourage you parents that share those stories with your kids. Share the stories of the great things that God has done in your life, the things that you've seen him do. I'm telling you, they need to hear those stories. They need to. 
They need to hear why mom and dad love the Lord, how God has answered your prayers. They need to hear about how God has led you and guided you and spoken to you, how God has been faithful to you and how God is good to you. They need to hear those stories. And let me ask you, consider for yourself, what are the great things that you have seen God do? Share those stories. One of my favorite texts in the Bible is this, when they dedicate the, the tabernacle, you know, and David says, this is in, um, in First Chronicles, David says, you know, tell of his mighty deeds, declare them to the nation. He, he's talking about telling the things that you have seen God do, telling those stories. You must do it, declare it to the nation, bring glory to God by telling those stories. You need to share the stories that you have the things that you've seen God do. You need to talk about them. You need to memorialize them. You cannot let them ever be forgotten. You need to remind yourself of them. You need to tell other people about them. Those are stories that need to be told because they glorify God and they build up the faith of other people. The stories are important. You know, my wife and I, we we have several stories of our own, you know, amazing things that we've seen God do over the years, even in our own family uh, or in the lives of other people. That things that have bolstered our faith and, and have bolstered our trust in God. And just last week, um, you know, a couple months ago, actually, I had been asked to write a chapter for a book that's being written about the work of God in Eastern Europe. So last week, I stayed up all night and I wrote this chapter to the book. But um, I love to tell those stories. I love to tell those stories of the things that I've seen God do because I believe they need to be told. I believe that those stories of what God has done need to be memorialized. And Samuel understood that. That's why he built this memorial here so that the people of God would never forget this day. They would never forget what God did for them and that that story would never be unheard. So verse 13, it says this, Then the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he, also, he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So this event where Israel returns to the Lord, where they repent of their sins, where they get rid of the things in their lives which don't belong there, this was a turning point for them. It was a turning point in their history. The tide turned, and despite all odds, they were able to push back the Philistines and get back what the Philistines had taken from them. The hallmark of Samuel's leadership was this altar, right? It was this idea of humble repentance, of coming to God with the spirit of reverence and worship and continually returning to the Lord. That's the hallmark of his leadership. You know, what we can learn from this story in regard to our theme of having a heart for God is this, that one of the keys to having a heart for God is having a humble and repentant heart. A heart that constantly returns to the Lord. A heart that gives up on resisting the Lord. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I said this earlier and I want to say it again. Saving face is not a biblical virtue. But returning is a gospel art. 
Returning takes humility. It takes humility to return and admit that you've been wrong. It takes humility to ask for forgiveness. It takes humility to let go of something that you've been holding on to against another person. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace is like water. It always flows to the lowest point. You know that grace is like water. It always flows to the lowest point. You know, there there is actually one more part to that story of the prodigal son that I didn't tell you. There's more to the story than than the part I shared with you. I really only shared with you the first part. If you got your Bible, go ahead and open up there. Luke chapter 15. If you remember, the story started out by Jesus saying there was a man who had two sons, but I only told you a story about one son, didn't I? The younger son always gets more attention, doesn't he? Right? He's the one who asked for his portion of the inheritance. He's the one who went off and squandered it and then returned home and asked for forgiveness. And he was the one who was given grace by the father. But there's more to the story. And actually, this is what makes the story so rich. Uh, in fact, it, it's, I would say this last part of the story is just as important as the first part. And it's the story of the older brother and his response to the grace that was shown to his younger brother. The older brother, when he saw how his father welcomed the younger brother back and forgave him and lavished grace upon him, in spite of all that the brother had done, what was his response? He became angry. So that he became angry. He refused to enter the party that the father was throwing for the younger son. And the father comes outside to reason with this older son, and he says, you know, what's going on, man? And the son says, you know, all these years, I have been the good son. I've done everything right. I've followed all the rules. I've never disobeyed you. And here my brother goes off, and he, he goes off and wastes your money on prostitutes and, and crazy living, and then he comes back, and you just throw a party for him like nothing ever happened. He says, this is not fair. I am a better person than he is, and I deserve to be treated better than he does. And the image at the end of the story is astounding. It's astounding. Look at this. The bad son, so to say, returned to the father with a spirit of humility, with a spirit of repentance. But the good son comes to the father with a prideful heart, with an attitude of entitlement, that he deserves more from the father than what the father has given him because he's a good person, certainly a better person than the other guy. But look at the picture at the end of the story. The younger brother reunited with the father and inside the house where the party's happening whereas the older brother is outside the house all by himself and he is now estranged from his father and the question the story poses is which one are you are you the younger brother who returns to the father in humility with no sense of entitlement just asking for grace and and asking for forgiveness or are you the older brother proud that you're better than other people, feeling that you deserve more from the father than what he's given you. The younger brother is embraced by the father, whereas the older brother finds himself outside the house, alone and estranged from the father. And all of us have that choice to make. How will we approach God? Like the younger brother or like the older brother? And I want you to know that all of us have that choice to make. You don't have to have gone off and lived a crazy life to approach God like the younger brother. We all have that choice to make. Will you approach God as the younger brother did or will you approach God as the older brother did? Again, notice what we learned from our stories today in 1 Samuel 6 and 7. God opposes the proud 
but gives grace to the humble. And grace is like water. It always flows down to the lowest point. If you try to exalt yourself, you cannot be a recipient of grace because grace is like water and it flows downward to the low points. But if you want to be a recipient of grace, then humble yourself before God. And in due time, that's the promise that he will exalt you. Not you exalting yourself. He will exalt you. That's what happened to the people of Israel in our story. And I believe the same is true for you. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for this great promise that if we will humble ourselves before you, if we will approach you like the younger son in our story, Lord, that you will lavish upon us grace extravagantly over the top. Lord, you will hold nothing back. Lord, I pray for any of us in here, if there's anyone in here today who has been approaching you like the older brother with a sense of entitlement, with a proud heart, exalting himself and saying, I am good and I deserve more. Lord, would you help us to see that? Would you help us to see that in our own hearts? Lord, that we could repent of it, that we could approach you like the younger brother and say, Lord, here I am. And I just wanna be, I just wanna be a recipient of your grace. Lord, thank you that your grace flows like water to the low points, the cracks and the crevices and the deep parts of our hearts, the deep, dark parts, Lord. Would your grace flow into our hearts today? And would you give us a heart for God? Help us to be like the children of Israel and the fact that we see in the story today that they return to you. Lord, if there's anyone here today who's been resisting you, perhaps even, Lord, you've been calling some of these uh, people who are with us today, you've been calling some of us to repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, to become a real Christian. Lord, I pray that if that's anybody here today, that they would no longer resist you. Lord, in any area of our lives where there's resistance, Lord, would you help us to see how futile it is? And Lord, would you pour out grace upon us as we humble ourselves before you now. And Lord, we humbly come to the communion table where we remember the body of Christ broken for us for the forgiveness of our sins, the blood of Christ shed for us so that we could have new covenant in his blood so that all of our sins could be washed away. Lord, thank you for that. And as we take communion today, we're making a statement that we receive that and we believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.